navigating the datascape with Chris Presley and special guests. Welcome to the December episode of our Cloud Update podcast, the podcast where we discuss the latest announcements from the leading public cloud vendors with industry experts. And I'll introduce those experts now. Today, I'm joined with Pierre Glisseau, who's going to be discussing AWS. Hey, Pierre, how are you doing? Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me. I'm doing great. Good. Welcome back. And also joining us is Warner Chavez, who's going to discuss the Azure updates. Hey, Warner. How are you doing? Good. Good to be back here after we did our Ignite show last month. Lots and lots, but the cloud never sleeps. So <laughs> it does. It does. And it was a real hit. Lastly, but not leastly, we're joined by Stéphane Frechette, who will be discussing GCP. Hey, Stéphane, welcome back. Hey, thank you, Chris. Good day, all. All right. I think today we will start with GCP. Looks like we've got quite a few to go through. Looks like Google spent a ton of time updating BigQuery. Stéphane, why don't you take us through a couple of those updates? Thank you, Chris. Yes, within the past last couple of weeks and months, there's been a lot of announcements, especially around BigQuery. One of the interesting things was about the ability for BigQuery streaming quotas, which is now in beta. So officially what that is, is about BigQuery was completely redesigned for streaming backend to increase the default streaming API quota by a factor of 10 through. So going from 100,000 to a million rows per second per project. So that gives a lot more throughput if you're doing a lot of streaming ingestion from your data into BigQuery. They've had to up the game for more performance. So this is really awesome uh, perspective when you're actually doing and building streaming projects, ingesting data into BigQuery. The other interesting stuff is that they've also included some capability to be able to do federated queries to Cloud SQL. So they have expanded their footprint. There's other services that could be used as federated queries. But now Cloud SQL, and unfortunately right now it only supports MySQL and Postgres. So because we'll talk about later in the upcoming discussions about the addition of a SQL server as a managed service within Cloud SQL. So essentially you're able to query data that is in Cloud SQL with a simple command, which is called external query. So instead of having to export data from these services into other sources, let's say in storage and being able to gap them and put them through through your different pipelines, you can directly from BigQuery now do these federated queries back to Cloud SQL. So that's really interesting. So you're, you're going to save a lot of hours and time in building your pipelines just because you're going to have the ability now to do some federated queries back to Cloud SQL. Now, Stefan, that is incredible. Does that mean, though, since it's not the data is going to remain in, in Cloud SQL, do you lose any BigQuery magic where if the data were to be stored in BigQuery? Well, it's just bringing in to the federated queries too. So if you're doing joins and you're getting up data from sources from BigQuery and Cloud SQL, so the data is actually federated and that brought through to the BigQuery. So any types of functions that you do that are related to the BigQuery, once it's in BigQuery, you have all that flexibility and different commands that you can do with BigQuery. Other interesting stuff is that they announced, which really is a, I would say game changer, but it's quite important, is the automatic reclustering of data too. So one of the partaking key features within BigQuery is all the about the partition table. So that becomes really interesting too. So everybody needs to make sure that they follow best practice and make sure they have active partitions. But now the ability for BigQuery without you taking care of ownership of the, what it does in the back, it automatically reclusters your data too. If you compare that to other RDBMS where there's a, or other warehouse where there's a, what we call a vacuum and automatic clustering, done to the process. So now it's abstract and it's not something that you need to deal with. So essentially what I'm trying to say is that BigQuery now supports the automatic reclustering of your data behind the scenes for you at minimal or no impact to performance. So this is huge. 
game changer when it comes really from a cost perspective of performance optimization of your BigQuery tables. The other important stuff at the BigQuery level is the command control and the ease of scripting and store procedures that were introduced into BigQuery. So now the interesting part is you can actually write store procedures in BigQuery. So if a lot of your ETL logic that you may have in other pipelines, now you incorporate them by building these store procedures in BigQuery. So a lot of data engineers need to sometimes write a lot of scripting language to be able to interact and move data in and out of BigQuery. But the fact now that you can have store procedures and some while loop logic and some scripting that need to be applied is another game changer. So that's something that mostly a lot of data engineers, I would say data analysts that actually get insights from BigQuery are happy to see. The other interesting part is Parquet and OCR now have become a part of the federated query where if you have data in a Parquet or RRC format that is staged within GCS buckets, you can now have the ability to join on that data through, through federated queries where you can bring that data into BigQuery. So that's another game changer, true? So by the addition that we mentioned earlier, Cloud SQL, now Parquet files and ORC file formats can actually be joined within big, and mixed with some BigQuery uh, data. That's also great news, true? So it's all about opening up the stage for federated queries for users to be able to tap into other sources or services within the GCP platform. So that's a huge answer from that perspective. I think so. Yeah, Google's been busy. Pierig, let's uh, come over to you and talk about some AWS updates. Uh, folks, just want to mention, though, before we get into this round of updates, we are not covering reInvent in this episode. We are going to create a reInvent special later this month, and it should be out in December. So if you notice something that's missing, like all the great Redshift competing updates, they're coming. So we'll discuss them with you soon. So Pierig, let's talk about some single sign-on updates. All right, single sign-on updates. So AWS has released a, a new feature for SSO. And so this is actually a nice integration, a multi-cloud integration, and this time it's meant to integrate Azure AD, so with Active Directory. As we all know, a lot of companies have their users directory built around Active Directory, and they've been having that for the past 10 years or so. And so migrating off of that is a, a complex task. And so AWS decided to integrate Active Directory into their SSO service to make uh, life easier for everyone. So AWS Single Sign-On allows you to register different apps in your AWS uh, landscape to connect to this service. One of the applications is actually your Active Directory. And so what this allows you to do is to give authentication to the AWS console, to any sort of AWS services, Azure AD. So people will be logging on with the same little uh, pop-up Azure Active Directory login box that they usually have. And then this allows them to connect to the AWS console and start doing stuff. And behind the scenes, this is a little more than this because it actually provisions those accounts in IAM for you at the same time. Because there is a need to do that on the AWS backend. So each time someone will sign in via Azure AD SSO, that user will actually get provisioned in the AWS IAM. Speaking of Azure, Warner, let's talk about the file system updates for the uh, Azure Data Lake. Yeah, absolutely. So this is uh, basically Microsoft continuing the story of making their new Gen 2 data lake storage. And if you've ever followed our podcasts, we've talked quite a bit about Azure Data Lake Storage Gen 2. But, you know, the quick version is they've built an API over their classic or original blob storage service. What this does is to give you the view and the optimizations and the programming model of a more common file system, not just the container and bucket 
type of file system like we're used to with blob storage or s3 or uh, google storage as well so azure data lake storage gives you first citizen objects for files directories POSIX permissions acls and so on so that you can pretty much take the same programming model that everybody's used to working with in terms of you know server style programming model for file systems and just extend it over to the cloud and this release right now it brings the dotnet sdk python sdk java sdk powershell and command line the azure cli capabilities for doing all these file system operations with azure data lake storage gen 2. so people can start putting directly into any of these languages or into their PowerShell scripts or whatnot, all these operations like moving files around, moving folders around the directories and so on. And then obviously changing the files around and doing all these things. And like I said, it's all with the semantics of a file system, not a container style store like the blob storage. Uh, Warner, we'll stick with you because I'm really excited about the update to uh, Azure Media Services. So Azure Media Services now is offering a live transcription for live events. And again, this is one of those really cool media type of features. I always like to look at what they're doing on the media side of the house because they really always showcase a lot of what the cloud can do, right? In terms of lots of ingestion, the data obviously has to consume and stream video in real time, go through their ML engines to spit out the transcription and then join it back into the video and bring it back down to whatever you're consuming, right? Uh, uh, devices could be PCs, could be mobile, could be whatever. Right, so it's kind of cool when you think about all that goes into just being able to do live transcription for anybody around the world, but it's all just neatly packaged for you, right? You don't have to worry about anything in terms of deploying the infrastructure, where the transcoding is happening, what transcoding models they're using. Microsoft obviously is changing and improving those behind the scenes all the time. So it's pretty cool. Anybody that's doing a live event, it just basically gives you the capabilities uh, all in a managed service to provide live transcription of speech to text. So that's really cool. Unfortunately, that's uh, automating a job away from people fill that job. There's actually more stuff uh, later on on the media updates that will probably automate a few people as well. But we'll get to that later on. <laughs> that sounds good. Piri, coming back to you, let's talk about some more machine learning from AWS. This feels like it was almost a direct copy of BigQuery ML service, which was announced uh, this summer. And so this is the integration into Amazon Aurora of two ML services uh, by Amazon. The first one is going to be SageMaker and the second one, Comprehend. So SageMaker is a service that allows you to build, train, and deploy your custom machine learning models. And Comprehend is a natural language uh, service that helps you to find insights. Let's say you have a string of text and you're trying to find if it's a positive or a negative comment or if it's neutral, that's the kind of thing that Comprehend is able to do. Similar to what Grammarly would do when you write a text and it gives you out your tone, your general tone of the text, right? It's those kinds of algorithms. So what this allows you to do is from Aurora direct SQLs queries, you can actually integrate with SageMaker by using data from your database to directly build the model on the fly into SageMaker. So that's a very cool feature. And that's actually a pretty much an exact copy of what BigQuery ML. To up the ante, what they've done is to allow Aurora users to use dedicated functions that rely on comprehend directly in queries. And so what you can do is you can do a select 
on a special field and call the function to interpret, as I was just saying, the context or the tone of a comment in that database field. So very two exciting features that are going to help people build some cooler and new ML stuff. Yeah, definitely. Stefan, speaking of databases, let's talk about SQL Server on GCP. Absolutely. Finally, now in beta. So leave no database behind. SQL Server, Cloud SQL is on. Highlights of the of what the current uh, implementation in uh, service offering is, is about compatibility, too. So Cloud SQL offers multiple editions. So a SQL Server that works with your popular clients, just a SQL Server Management Studio. So any connectivity to these types of database, Cloud SQL that you would run on GCP, you can use the familiar tools that you're used to connect to them, too. So the ability to have flexible backup, true schedule automatic daily backups and runs on demand. This is a feature that is currently in beta. Scalability, true. It's a service that it will scale. There's automatic storage to increase configuration from your Cloud SQL as you start expanding your footprint, let's say, uh, using a Cloud SQL. And there's also built-in high availability uh, for Cloud SQL, true, which is enable all additions that secretly replicate data across each zones using regional persistent disks. So as it is in beta, there will be absolutely more features coming soon. So like uh, Active Directory integration, read replicas, expanding machine types, and the online migration tool. So when you actually want to migrate some of your existing database, let's say from a SQL Server uh, on-prem perspective to a Cloud SQL SQL Server, these online migration tool will be offered in the near future. Again, I thought it was a good announcement last year at Next, and the fact now that kind of bridges the gap, so you got MySQL, Postgres, and SQL Server, so that's, it's great. So people and customer have the ability to look at the foray of what their needs are, but even though SQL Server is not an open source database, but they're available for our customers Customers to use and start integrating some of their workloads either from on-prem to the cloud. So that, I think that was a great addition and I look forward. Let's stick with SQL Server and move over to you, Warner, with some updates to Azure Backup. Yeah, this is not groundbreaking uh, surprise to anybody. Obviously, Microsoft is already updating all their support into the Azure database-related services for SQL Server 2019, which we announced on the Ignite podcast that is now released to market. So not a surprise here. Almost immediately after the announcement, a couple of weeks ago, they enabled the Azure Backup Service support for SQL Server 2019. So people can confidently start deploying in-production workloads 2019 in Azure VMs and have the support of the Azure Backup Vault service. And on top of that, they've enabled something else on Azure Backup support that had been a big ask from clients, and it's the capability to restore as files. So previous to this enablement, what happened is that the Azure Backup Vault worked, well, it worked really well, but the restore part, you were basically forced to restore into a SQL Server in Azure and to be able to get your files back. So for example, if I had my Azure Backup Vault with backups of a particular database, and then I wanted to send them over to somebody outside of my company, for example, then I would have to use the Azure Backup Vault, restore into a SQL Server VM in Azure, and then take the backup and then send them to whoever I wanted to send them to, right? So it kind of had like this middle step because the backup vault only allowed restore into a SQL Server instance, right? So now they have the capability to restore as files. It's actually pretty neat because it supports point-in-time restore. So you basically say, look, I want to get to this point in time for this particular database, and the Azure Backup Service can spit out the files that you need 
Azure Blob storage. And then you can just take those files and send them over to anybody, move them on premises or whatever it is that you wanted to do with them. So a lot more flexibility there in the restore capability of the Azure backup service. Pierre, let's come back to you and talk about some of the updates that AWS made to their load balancer. Right, so there's about five uh, new updates on the AWS load balancers, both application load balancers and network balancers. I see that two of them were actually quite important, so I wanted to bring them up here. So the first one that I found really interesting is weighted target groups for application load balancers. This is what was missing to do red, blue, green deployments and canary testing on ALBs. And so this allows you to give different weights on your backends. And so the simple example is to have, let's say, um, one of your backends that takes 1% of the traffic. And so that would be your canary instance. And the rest of the traffic would go to the rest of instances. Obviously, that canary instance would be running you know, a better version of your application. And then what you can do, you can ensure that a session affinity for those users, uh, canary testers stick to that instance and so on. So it's um, a very, very cool feature. Something where you needed to use some more complex tools to do this, and now it's um, easily doable just with the ALBs. So uh, very nice. And the other one is uh, least outstanding requests for application load balancers. So now you can balance requests across targets based on the target with lower number of outstanding requests. So this is really useful when you have application workloads with varied request size. So imagine an application where a lot of users are just reading content and other users are posting content. So you can kind of do that kind of separation of users based on least outstanding requests. So a pretty cool feature. The other one is for network load balancers. So actually the three next ones are gonna be for network load balancers. And so first one is on subnet expansion support for network load balancers. So before, when you created a network load balancers, you decided at creation time what were going to be the subnets that you could have instances with backends in them. And whenever you needed to expand that, move to a different region, you know, create additional subnets, you pretty much needed to create a new NLB and then flip your traffic over to that one. So this makes it a lot easier. You can actually now edit an NLB and add, add new subnets to it. So it's all. Uh, a nice way to expand that. The other one for internal network load balancers, which is really cool, is the ability to use private IP addresses. So now instead of typing in instance names as backends, you can actually type in some specific IP addresses. What that gives you the flexibility or what, what we see coming here is that people are gonna be to, able to use internal network load balancers to balance on-prem machines with a cloud-enabled uh, network load balancer via the VPC tunnel back to your on-prem. So that's a nice feature that people have been looking for for a while. And comes with this, which is kind of natural, is the shared VPC supports for NLB. So now you can create network load balancers and shared VPCs, which you can do before. And this allows you to route traffic across subnets and VPCs managed by the central account and use AWS private link, for example. You can enable uh, users to privately access your services in those shared subnets from other VPCs or on-premise networks without using the public IPs that you would need to use before. So it makes all that more communications more secure than before. So five cool updates on the network load balancers. Let's come back to you, Stefan. Looks like there were some AD updates on GCP as well. 
Yes, finally, now in beta, which was announced that they were going to go into that phase, which is a managed service for Microsoft Active Directory. So as organizations are, are dependent on AD apps and servers that are moving to the cloud and migration to the cloud, it becomes really important too, that they have all these AD domain controllers set up properly. You can actually deploy your own fault for an AD environment uh, and GCP on your own, but Google believes that using their managed services, Microsoft AD, which provides a more high available ardent Google service, is the way to go, true? So what you get when you're using the service is actual Microsoft AD uh, running on real Microsoft AD domain controllers. So you don't need to worry about any types of application compatibility. You can use any standard Active Directory features, such as, uh, as an example, group policies, RSAT, remote server administration tool to manage your domain. So essentially, this service is available. It's automatically patched for you and configured with secure defaults, true? Protected for any types of network firewall rules. And the beauty of all this is that it's, it's seamless because it has support for multi-region deployment. So you can deploy a service in a specific region and allow your app or your VMs in the same region to access the domain controller over low latency VPC, virtual private cloud. As your infrastructure needs to grow, you can simply expand the service to additional regions while continuing to use the same managing service. So again, another game changer that was announced at Next last year. So it's currently in beta, and I hope customers are going to start looking at integrating within their solutions on the GCP platform. Yeah, but it's super interesting that all of the other cloud providers are kind of tipping their hat to AD and integrating with it, uh, Microsoft's AD. Exactly. There's a lot of legacy footprint out there that uses and relies on that, too. So it's great that they get that one going on the GCP platform. It is. And we'll stay with you, Stefan. There was a pretty interesting Python update to Cloud Data Flow. Yeah, really not much to say then finally. <laughs> Support for Python 3. So for any of the data engineers out there, uh, either building data flow pipelines or in our streaming pipelines, there was a tendency from a performance perspective when you were doing streaming to go to Java. But now with the addition of Python 3 and the streaming support for the Python SDK, you're pretty much covered now. So you can jump over and use the latest features within Python 3 in building these uh, data pipelines. So again, the, the community was uh, eagerly waiting on this update from a compatibility perspective. So the great announcements, finally it's there. And I think there was end of life support coming soon to Python 2.7 or something like that by January. I think it was January 20 or something like that. I know it's in the new year, but yeah, great news and great addition. Uh, I've seen when the post was actually released publicly, there was a lot of noise uh, within the social media community. So that's awesome. Let's stay on the development theme and come back to Warner and talk about GitHub Actions. Yeah, so again, another one that's not going to be a surprise for anybody. Who would have thought that Microsoft wanted to buy GitHub to build lots of integrations with its own cloud service? It's a shocker <laughs> for everybody, right? I mean, you don't spend $26 billion to not get your money back, right? So yeah, GitHub Actions for Azure is now absolutely GA. And what this does, of course, is that you can tie up whatever different type of GitHub activities, such as code commit or a pull request or a new uh, release in your repo and so on, and basically fire that into an Azure so that you can easily create a workflow. For example, if you want to do a build inside Azure, if you want to run a test battery inside Azure, if you want to package a new release inside Azure, if you want to deploy a new code. So for example, let's say you have a set of Azure functions that service an API. You can now just create a GitHub action that will 
trigger, let's say if somebody does a new release on the repo, then it can trigger an Azure pipeline that will build the code and then replace your Azure function and then you're servicing the new version of the API without having to do all those other steps yourself, right? You basically build it once, and then every time you're pushing a new release onto GitHub, the whole rest of the process happens, right? So it's easier to build automation with the integration to GitHub into the rest of your development pipeline, right? So, and again, obviously, it's, this supports uh, containerized apps, a serverless function app, a web app, Let's say you have a SQL code that you want to run against your database. If you're running a Kubernetes, if you're going to trigger some sort of action, specifically something custom in Azure pipelines, right? The actions themselves, they are very, very flexible. Pretty cool. I think people that are used to working DevOps CI CD into Azure and they're using GitHub will probably over time start to migrate into using GitHub actions and just eventually kind of like sunset the code that they probably already have that is doing a lot of this stuff. On that uh, staying with the development theme, Pirig, let's talk about AWS App Config. AWS App Config is filling out a gap that we've had for several years um, about config management on AWS. So there is a, a chef-based uh, product initially uh, a while back that, that was created by AWS, but it never really got the success that AWS was looking for. And they actually didn't use this internally either. So AWS built their own tool to make configuration management a lot easier for themselves. And customers are always asking AWS, hey, how can we be like you guys? How can we do the things the way you guys do it? And so AWS decided to actually release this product. And so they've called it AWS App Config. And it's a really nice uh, GUI-driven configuration management tool from AWS, so you have some forms to fill out where you're looking at what, what parts of configuration management you want to tend to, and it's a really nice point-and-click interface, easier to adopt for a lot of users, while still being driven by an API if you need that kind of uh, power. So a nice uh, configuration management tool, something new to look at. What about the CDK update you wanted to talk about? Right, so AWS finally released some new SDKs, one based on Java and the other one based on .NET. These allow people to actually build their provisioning on AWS to spin up instances with the languages of their choice now, with either Java or .NET. Before, we've had a lot of Python that was readily available, a lot of Node.js that was available. And so they brought in these new support for these two languages. And so people will start building their environments, some auto-scaling logic, um, you know, provisioning logic based on their own source code. And they can now use it .NET-based or Java. So really cool. No cloud update podcast is complete without a Kubernetes discussion. So Warner, take it away. Yeah, this is a new capability for Kubernetes inside Azure, which is basically that they are bringing confidential computing into the Azure Kubernetes service, or if you want to deploy your own Kubernetes machine as well and do the config yourself. But basically what this is, is that now you can deploy your Kubernetes cluster on the series of machines and operating systems that support the Intel SGX Secure Enclave technology. So we've talked about the Secure Enclaves, I believe, previously mm -hmm. yep. in the podcast, mostly tied to the SQL Server feature called Always Encrypted. But for those of you that are not familiar with it, I'll just give a 10-second explanation. Secure Enclave is basically a protected 
section of main memory that is always encrypted. So even if you were to say you are an, an admin, and this is really to provide really lockdown compute security, right? So we're not talking about somebody that's going to call and send you the emails from the trip to Disneyland to steal your data or something like that, right? This is about the possibility of somebody dumping your memory and then looking at the clear text data in your memory, right? So it's not something that's going to happen really easily anyway. But with the secure enclave technology, either with uh, Intel is one of the ones that have implemented it on hardware, basically you have a portion of memory that is always encrypted. And even if you were an admin of the server, or even if you were an admin in the cloud provider, some malicious person working at Microsoft or Amazon or Google, for example, even if you were able to dump that memory down, you would not be able to read the contents because it is encrypted and it's encrypted at the hardware level. So from, let's say, a client application, the key travels securely directly into the hardware. So there is no meddling of the operating system. This is all tied into the chip BIOS as well. And the key never leaves the secure part of the chipset in itself. And the data comes into the chipset. The key's already inside the chipset, gets decrypted, and then it goes back into the application. The server itself, where the compute is happening, outside of that encrypted part of memory and outside of the chip itself, it's never decrypted, visible for anybody else, nor any other process, right? So that's what secure enclaves are. So this is now implemented inside Kubernetes as well. So if you were you wanted to do some, like I said, the term is confidential computing. And like I said, it's probably not for every single workload because first of all, it's not an infinite number of memory that you can encrypt in this way, right? Because it's implemented in hardware. It's basically a section of memory. But if you had a security requirement like this, probably, you know, let's say government, defense, I don't know, something really, really top level. On that same topic, uh, Stefan, coming back to you, let's talk about a similar update. Well encryption, basically, and cloud data flow. The cloud data flow pipeline is the same. What has changed here is the Google's giving the ability for the customer to bring their own management keys through for encryption. That service was usually automatically on, and it was the key that manages by Google. So now with this release, what it enables is the customer to, like I mentioned, to bring their own management keys for these data flow pipelines and processing. So whether the data is in flight or at rest, the encryption technologies that use these managed keys will suffice for the customer Drew, that really wants to have control over their own key management and bringing up their key. So it's really just a feature that was maybe requested by the community and the customers out there is, uh, is to bring their own keys to the stake and play and securing these data pipelines. I think it's great, Drew. So it's just a small feature, but it's, it goes a long ways when the customer uh, needs to have full control over the uh, set of keys and encryption technology that they use on the GCP platform. Yeah, I think that's cool. Pierre, let's talk about the updates to Elastic Block Store. Right, so this is a very interesting update, a long-awaited one, actually, because EBS snapshots have always been like a very cool way to back up and restore your data. But unfortunately, EBS volumes come kind of with a, a few problems. Well, the restoration of a snapshot was a very lengthy process for one. Secondly, you needed to warm up your EBS block storage to actually you know, get back the IOPS that you were actually looking for. So in the end, restoring, let's say, uh, an e a large EBS volume that held a database of some sort was actually probably several days process of restoration. That waste of time there was problematic for a lot of customers. So what Amazon did is to introduce a, a new technology called Fast Snapshot Restore, FSR. 
And so what you need to do is to enable this new feature on the EBS snapshots that you want to be able to restore more quickly. What happens in the back end is the first time that you click on this button, there will be a fairly lengthy process happening in the back end the first time. And it's about an hour per terabyte of data that you have on your EBS uh, volume. So let's say I have a 16 terabyte volume uh, filled with eight terabytes of data that would take about eight hours to get it ready for FSR. But once it's ready for FSR, I can restore it in instance in a few seconds and I don't need to warm up my, my volume anymore. It's ready to go. What most users are using this for is for, of course, backup and restore, but also to move data down from a production pipeline down to a QA or to a dev environment. That's a common method used to do that. So they take a snapshot of their production database and move it down slowly in dev, where before that took days, this now takes seconds. So a very cool feature. Yeah, indeed. And not only that, when I read the article about it, it actually mentions that EBS is uh, over a decade old. Isn't that kind of right? Cool? Right. It's actually, yeah, EBS, you see two instances have been around for yeah a decade already. That's incredible. Let's talk a little bit more about transcription, Warner, with Azure's Video Indexer. Yeah, this is the other one that I mentioned before that I was probably going to, unfortunately, maybe get some people to have to, um, you know, to learn some new skills. But basically what's happening here is... This is multi-language identification and transcription on video indexers. So obviously what the name says is that not only are they supporting English, but they are supporting uh, multiple languages for that uh, identification and transcription into the video indexer. So we just talked about live transcription, and this is about indexing the, and creating the transcription of existing videos that you might have. Let's say, you know, you've been compiling, maybe you're a media company and you have terabytes of video worth of data already recorded. And going back, obviously, would be a really lengthy process to have anybody manually do this, right? The only way to do this is to do it automated if you're like, you know, you're the BBC or something like that and you have terabytes on terabytes of video content over the years, right? But then the cool thing about this particular update is that the multi-language audio transcription is automatic. So most of the times doing multi-language is not necessarily a big deal, but somebody has to, at the beginning, tag the video or somewhere and say, this was shot in German, or this was shot in French, or this was shot in Spanish. You have to tell the algorithm what is the language that they're supposed to expect. So the algorithm doesn't figure out what the language is, right, And in a classical sense. In this case, this is what is happening. So you don't have to tag anything. You just shoot it into the video indexer, and it will automatically detect what is the language being spoken and do the transcription for it, right? So like I was mentioning, yeah, probably a couple of people. I mean, the guy that was doing the Spanish transcription and the guy that was doing the Italian transcription, well, sorry, now the two people basically got replaced by the video indexer. This is just the way the things are working out nowadays. So yeah, it does it automatically and it does it on the fly on different languages as well. So if half the clip was in English and the other half the clip was in Italian, it automatically detects the shift in the language and it will transcribe the Italian piece and the English piece automatically as well. That's really cool. When you think about, I mean, that's really 
amazing when you think about the programming that must go behind because for it to actually determine the language and know that it's right because you know computers don't care oh yeah well i mean they have so many data sets right that yeah. they used to train all these models now this is the nice thing about all this cloud innovation too because like microsoft google aws they have the resources to create these very accurate models that become general use models right anybody can use them now and then people just use them, they just consume them. They didn't spend the R&D that Microsoft, Google, AWS had to spend to actually create the models, right? It's just gonna drive innovation faster for everybody, right? And probably create some really cool new products. Let's go and wrap up the GCP updates to Finn and talk about uh, Dataprox Autoscaling. Yeah, great. Uh, thank you, Chris. So again, this feature is now in GA. It's been embedded for quite a while. So basically, this is about removing the need for complex capacity planning that's always result in miss SLAs or resource uh, sitting idles when you're actually deploying your data park. So here's this great feature where data park auto scales automatically for you. So it's about right sizing your cluster. So estimating the right number of cluster worker nodes is really difficult, even in a single cluster environment. So now what Google's saying is that don't worry about it, right sizing your cluster it's done automatically for you for auto scaling. So this is a great feature, Drew. So you really wanna go down and minimize on the cost and so, uh, when you're deploying these data product clusters. So one of the interesting also perspective and aspect and features is also, it's about policy. So one auto scaling policy for multiple clusters. So by having that, you can actually reuse your configuration that describes how your clusters are actually scale. And you can set boundaries on different threshold and fine grain control your cluster resources through its lifetime. It's also good for budget optimization too. So scale and scale out your clusters while you can set the limits in the auto scaling policy to make sure you don't exceed certain budget. And that's key too, because sometimes some of these clusters are running 24 hours or whatever too. So there's great integration with Yarn. All these auto scaling policies integrate with Yarn automatically and trigger uh, either VM scaling as needed. The other important feature is that it enables monitoring of auto-scaling job with Stackdriver. You can view these metrics as you've been capable to see before, but now because they're automatically scale on your behalf, you can actually quickly monitor within Stackdriver. And the, one of the last features is really the ability to deploy this in multi-region support. So as you deploy auto-scaling features with your data product clusters, you can deploy in any region where your cloud data product are actually running. So again, leave behind, it is actually managed by Google. So you don't necessarily need to worry about the scaling auto feature. If you really turn it on, Google will assure that uh, all your jobs are properly done within a specific budget constraint and policy that you've set up within your data proc uh, clusters. That's very intelligent auto scaling. Let's come back to you, Pirig, and talk about web app firewall. So the web application firewall from AWS now released some managed rule groups. And so that's a very interesting feature because these are basically security rules to apply to firewalls that are created and managed by AWS. And so some of them are pretty simple and some of them are more complicated. Some simple ones could be like admin protection on some WordPress pages, right? So a lot of people will use like a WordPress framework to expose their website, but then the admin you know, page could be accessible. This WAF rule enforce that this is not accessed over public internet. Another interesting one is that now Amazon manages its own IP reputation list. And so that's a good feature. So basically allowing a traffic to your websites from IPs that have known good reputation or actually excluding known 
countries that are known to source uh, attacks and things of the sort. And you have other more complex ones like uh, protecting Linux operating systems via WAF. So some vulnerabilities specific to Linux. I can think about you know LFI attacks, uh, that sort of stuff can be protected by the WAF. You have some other ones will monitor for SQL in injections when maybe your form is not very well coded in your web application and is uh, you know sensitive to the SQL injections. The WAF will protect you against that. And then in some other more common framework issues, such as like PHP applications, which leverage some frameworks, which have their specific unsafe functions to protect against, things of those sorts. So a whole collection of really useful AWS rules. And they're like maintained by AWS. So the next time, you know, there's a known Linux vulnerability that, that's released, it will get added to the Linux operating system, WAF rule. And so that allows you to sleep. Warner, let's come back to you and talk about some new reservation options on Azure. Yeah, so as most people probably follow this podcast, you know about the concept of reserving a particular resource or instance, which just means you say, well, I'm okay with, you know, saying that I'm going to be using this for a longer period of time as long as I get a better price, right? So over time, not every single service gets released once it goes G8. Not all of them get released right away with reservations being enabled. So not all of them allow this purchase model from right from the get-go. So over time, they usually bring in more services into to this type of purchasing model. So what we're looking at here is starting this month, now you can do reserved purchases of capacity on Azure Data Lake Storage Gen 2. Like we've uh, been following the podcast as well. There's been a lot of investment going into Azure Data Lake Storage Gen 2. That's pretty good. So for example, just to give you guys an idea here, you can purchase reserve capacity, obviously, because this is storage. The idea is that you're gonna purchase a large amount of storage to get the savings, right? So you can pre-purchase this capacity in increments of 100 terabytes and you can use into different tiers. So it could be hot, cool, or archive tiers. And you can reserve from one year to three years and go in the max, you can be saving about 38% of the cost if you are going with the max of three year reservation, right? I mean, that's a lot of money, especially if you're enterprise spending quite a bit of money on storage. It might make a lot of sense to just do a reserved purchase, right? And then you don't have to worry about the price changing and you get a big fat discount up front. Same with the other service that's been added to it is the Azure database for MySQL, PostgreSQL, and MariaDB. So the open source offerings of Azure database. They have now a discount of up to 51% if you do the reservation to the max as well. And they have also done the same with the premium SSD managed disks. So again, if for example, you're deploying a particular server or VM that you know, you know, this particular, it's a premium SSD disk. So you're not gonna deploy it just for like a throwaway VM. Usually premium SSDs, are only used for high performance workloads like database services or high performance computing. So if you know that you're gonna be running this particular database server, for example, for the next couple of years, you can just deploy it on an SSD that has been reserved and just get your savings that way. Anybody that has already committed or knows that they have a clear roadmap staying with that particular cloud service, and this is regardless of Azure, GCP, or AWS, they all offer these type of reservations. And honestly, there's a lot of clients that I see that 
don't really look into it and they just it's easy to just deploy and go on the portal and just always do pay as you go for the flexibility but sometimes the savings are quite significant right and yeah you're giving up some flexibility but I mean if you're not looking into doing any major shifts and you can do your proper capacity planning they can translate definitely into big savings I see a lot of requests from our customers and potential customers on how can I save money on cloud? I thought it was going to be real cheap and now I'm, <laughs> yeah. no, my bills are huge. So great opportunities there. Let's wrap up the Azure changes, Warner, and talk about the new feature added to Azure Blob Storage. Yeah, so this is basically the change feed is now available on Azure Blob Storage. And a change feed is basically an, an event feed that you can tap into and it will tell you everything that is happening in your Azure Blob Storage account. So instead of you having to code something that, let's say for example, you want to know the permission changes that have happened into your Azure Blob Storage, for example. Instead of you having to do like a before and after and see what has changed, you can just tap into the change feed and if a permission change event happens, then you can just consume it and do whatever you want or you need it to do with that particular event, right? And this is not just permission changes, but if a blob is updated or if a blob is deleted or if it's modified, then it goes into this change feed, right? So for example, maybe a bunch of different files got uploaded and instead of firing one event per file or anything like that, you can just go into the change feed and then do something in bulk for all these newly uploaded files, right? If you have to process them or scan them or do something, you can do your own analytics into the operations that are happening to your files in your blob storage. If you wanna do some custom auditing, for example, that uh, let's say the, the current auditing capabilities of blob storage just don't meet your requirements, then this would be an easy way to throw in your own custom auditing without having to do some really complicated code to compare before and after states of the blobs, right? Let's say you have some sort of data stream that for some reason doesn't go into a hub, it doesn't go into a database, it just goes straight into flat files, then you can take advantage of the change feed as well so that let's say you know your application can just keep spitting out files into storage but you can kind of turn it into a stream type of operation by using the change feed as that stream of file based events right so it opens up a couple of different scenarios that were really complicated to do before. Absolutely. It'll definitely keep some auditors happy out there somewhere. Pyrig, let's finish up AWS. And I'd like to start with Amazon CloudWatch Service Lens. Amazon CloudWatch Service Lens is a new tool that allows you to create some fancy aesthetic dashboards in CloudWatch. So the idea is to, uh, let's say you have a complex application that runs with several microservices. So what you can do is actually pretty much draw out the architecture of this entire application and show all the individual microservices in a dashboard. And you will see, you can have like graphical alerts, you know, uh, red lights that go on, you can have throughput indicators, latency counters, all that good stuff. Very similar to what people would have been doing in open source software such as Kibana and Grafana. So you can do some these nice fancy dashboards in the top pane of uh, your CloudWatch. And then in the bottom pane, you're able to correlate um, logs, uh, metrics, 
and uh, stack traces uh, very easily. So you have histograms that you can display at the bottom, maybe complete log lines. And so the idea is for you to have like a single pane of glass to troubleshoot complex application that runs on several microservices so that you don't run all over the place and are able to quickly identify which one of these items has a problem that you need to troubleshoot. And the second one is Amazon CloudTrail Insights. And this one is actually to monitor API activity on AWS, but APIs to spin up and provision resources. So what people are doing inside your AWS account. So it's actually ML-based. And so it needs to run for a, a few moments to actually establish baselines on what your normal activities are. And from there, it will you know, send you alerts when, oh, wait, this um, auto-scaling group suddenly you know, scaled up to... Uh, 20 boxes, which we've never done before. And so that's actually, you know, very interesting insights on what's happening in your account, how you control stuff. If you have a new user that comes in and suddenly, you know, spins up this very large cluster of EMR that you're not used to. So it will pick up all those kinds of things and, and put them back up in the a GUI for you to, to action on. So uh, an interesting feature. Yeah, definitely. I, I love all the machine learning being applied to looking for security incidents. And I think it's a great move forward. Although I'm deeply concerned about what happens when ML things go wrong. Certainly we'll be seeing some stuff in the news and maybe even uh, doing a podcast or two about that. Very interesting stuff. Well, let's close with our monthly working in the cloud age productivity tip. And this month's tip came from Warner, even though he didn't know that he was giving the tip. He was looking at some of the stuff I was doing and he said, you know, you really should get the great suspender for Chrome, which I did. And now this only helps you if you use Chrome, which a lot of us do. But this extension minimizes the memory use of tabs. So if you have a lot of open tabs, you can free up a bunch of memory on your computer if you're, you know, you leave documents open, which I do as my checklist to come back and edit a document or review something or, or whatnot. So I started using that. I know Warner's using that. Uh, are you guys using that? For sure. I'm, I've been using that for a long time. No, I know Perry uses that because I you think it was Perry who mentioned it. it once and then I got it from Perry. <laughs> I think that's right. Yeah, if I recall. Uh, and yeah. how about you, Stefan? I do use it, so it's a, a great feature, too. So I love it. Good. And so no affiliation at all, guys, but folks, but it's working for us. Do you have a productivity tip? Send it over to me at datascapepodcast at gmail.com. You can also send us feedback there or ideas for new shows. And that's all the time we had for today, folks. The biggest compliment you can give us is by helping others to find us. You can do that by telling a friend or writing a short, honest review on a platform such as iTunes. Thanks and have a great day in the Datascape. Navigating the Datascape.